As I said, we continue this morning into the ethos of the kingdom uh, series. This is the last, seri- the last edition of the series that we've been in. And it's a DNA on learning the kingdom of God. It's understanding what the culture of the kingdom looks like. It shows the way Jesus turned the world upside down. The way in which he changed everything we believe in. And kind of asks us to push against the flow of the world. This morning we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 10 through 12. We are looking at a message which I've titled, The Baptism of Suffering. If you have your Bibles with me, I encourage you to open up to Matthew 5, 10 through 12. You will also be able to follow on the screen. Um, And I just encourage you to read along. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord God, we just invite your Holy Spirit here. We ask that you have your way. You be present. You reveal things of the Word to us. You reveal things of the nature of God to us. And most importantly, the nature of the kingdom. And you teach us not how to only live them out, but to live into the things of the kingdom. We thank you, Lord. We ask that you just send your Holy Spirit and energize us in that way today. Amen. Matthew five ten through 12 says this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. One of the first things we see happening in this passage is Jesus is coming full circle. When he started his his message on the Sermon on the Mount, when he starts teaching on the DNA of the kingdom, on the ethos of the kingdom, the culture of the kingdom, he says, blessed are those who are poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the first statement that he makes, and it was the first that we looked at in this series. Now coming to the end of the Beatitudes, it's the point that Jesus ends on again. He defines who the kingdom is for, who is experiencing the kingdom. As Jesus taught them to be attitudes, the culture, the ethos of heaven, we see several different measurements of the kingdom's DNA. The first few DNA points were things that we have no say over. They are things that we have either inherited or because of systems at play, we have been forced to participate in rather than choose to participate in. We see Jesus bless the poor in spirit, the hungry, the sorrowful, the poor, the grieving, and the meek. The kingdom blessing Jesus distributed in these was much more than those who were suffering under broken systems. Jesus issued a blessing for those who were suffering under broken systems, afflicted heritage, and their birthright. However, we see Jesus change his tone a little bit in the Beatitudes. Then he starts to list four more parts of the Beatitudes that involve a much more intentional, ethical dimension to them. They are measures of the kingdom in which we must intentionally and willingly follow Jesus into. They aren't things we've born into or participate in by default. They are things we must choose to participate in. To show mercy, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, and to finally live in a way that may cause persecution is something we must choose to follow Jesus in. He's not going to drag us into these areas of the kingdom, kicking and screaming in the same way. He will not pour out the unique blessings that we will experience in these areas if we don't follow him. We need to follow Jesus intentionally and willingly into these realms. 
as Jesus delivered his teaching on the ethos of the kingdom to a crowd of ragamuffin and vagabond souls that gathered to listen to him, he delivered a message of blessing in a time in which these men and women who had gathered had found every department of their life was being interrupted, disrupted, oppressed, and fallen victim to circumstance. Jesus came and he blessed a people with a kingdom blessing that thought they could take no more. It was kind of a twofold blessing that Jesus was doing. First, as we know, they wanted a Messiah that would reverse oppression and circumstance. They wanted life to become easy for them. They wanted things to make sense. They wanted to feel like they were winning in the world. But when Jesus shows up to teach the ways of the kingdom, he tells them this. Blessed are you who do that. Jesus came not to make life easy, but to make men and women great in the midst of oppression and circumstance. Following Jesus through these Beatitudes, we are not going to find life gets any easier. In fact, we find that Jesus begins to raise the bar in troubling ways. In fact, his listeners, as they gathered on his hill, not sure who this guy was and what his message was, they would have started to understand that. He asked them to walk a path and follow the way that meant their work, social, and home lives would not only be disrupted, but more disrupted and interrupted in ways that they had already been. Their careers would go from sustainable work to mission fields with convictions. Their social life was redefined with people who were despised rather than climbing the social ladder. Their home life would experience division as people would decide whether or not they would choose the way or not. It meant all of a sudden that we just didn't go to temple, but we lived as a family on mission. Goals in living went from succeeding and achieving to bringing about a kingdom inside an established and oppressed one. He asked them to be about a mission that made no sense to the world at large. He asked them to become ridiculed to become persecuted. Some of the biggest complaints we experience in the church today is how hard it is to balance life and church and the kingdom's mission. We begin to find ways to fill Jesus in the crack and discipleship, but we view Jesus, and what we begin to say is that we just need to be about Jesus, we need to be about the centrality of Jesus, and we think that is a simplification and easy way of life. The centrality of Jesus is actually a heavy burden which causes us to find challenge and not ease. Here on this mountain, Jesus declares the only way to make the kingdom evident is to make it evident all we do. Raise our commitment and to put that commitment before all else. Persecution will certainly come from every side. In some ways, these eight DNA structures, the Beatitudes, these cultures and ethos of the kingdom would be demonstrated merely as Jesus picking up a sword and slicing it down the middle and drawing a line in the sand. This is what's always been, but this is what the kingdom needs. These are the sides in which Jesus created through the Beatitudes. It is meant redefining the way we, it has come to mean that we need to redefine the way we do family, life, and family and life together, focusing on us to be the mission together. He's asking us to stick our heads up, as I mentioned last week, even if it means the chopping block. Here in the midst of this, Jesus teaches them it's the kingdom's culture and the kingdom ethos to be blessed, to be persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
as I said, this challenge is twofold. First, he's issuing a blessing to those who are experiencing this already. Blessed are you who are persecuted. For you, you will inherit the kingdom. You will experience the kingdom in unique ways. This is for you. But he's also telling them this. And they would have known this as they listened, if they were listening deeply. If you're going to follow me in this life, if you're going to follow the ethos of the kingdom, if you're going to follow the DNA of the kingdom, it's going to mean even greater persecution. It's going to be more trouble. Life is going to get super hard, not just hard. It means oppression and circumstance will not get easier. But I promise you this, he says, the kingdom will be evident. As they sat on that mountainside, they didn't know what level of persecution would come. But just in a few years, Roman empires would begin to throw people to lions. They would be able to make them go into games of violence. Uh, Nero, who set a whole new level of persecution of the Christians, would light Christians on fire only to pour water on them to cool them down to light them on fire again. He would, he would melt hot pieces of metal and stick them to his skin so they could hear the hiss. He loved the sound of that hissing. He would chop off parts of limbs and make them watch it burn. This is what persecution meant. They did not understand it, but they knew that if they would follow Jesus, the road wasn't going to get easier. These are the words in which Jesus was referring to as he gathered on his hillside, that life was not going to get easier. For the most part, most of us do not understand persecution. We understand it through the stories in which our Anabaptist forefathers have told. And we understand it through the stories of the Bible and things that we have uh, heard about the biblical times. But for most of us, we don't have a deep understanding of persecution outside of what we've seen in film, newspaper headlines, and stories from the Bible. We don't have a solid experience foundation. We don't have a taste for it. We don't understand it. And the things that we do label as persecution in America are usually far from true persecution in which Jesus is referring to. If we look at the idea of persecution in America in modern day, perhaps it's best exemplified by Jackie Robinson, number 42. Perhaps one of the best modern-day and American examples of persecution is thrown through the story of a baseball player in 1947, a story of true colors that were put to the test and stayed even truer. Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born in Cairo, Georgia in 1919 to a family of sharecroppers. His mother, Mally, single-handedly raised Jackie and her four other children. They were the only black family on their block And the prejudice that they encountered only strengthened their bond together as a family. Growing up in a large, single-parent family, Jackie excelled early at all sports and learned to make his own way of life. In 1945, Jackie was playing a season in the Negro Baseball League after his his try to make football was unable, uh, he didn't, wasn't able to make it football, so he tried baseball, traveling all over the Midwest with the Kansas City Monarchs. But greater challenges and achievements were in store for him. In 1947, Brooklyn Dodgers president and manager Branch Rickey approached Jackie about joining the Brooklyn Dodgers. The major leagues had not seen an African player since 1889 when baseball had first become organized. Baseball was segregated. When Jackie first donned a Brooklyn Dodger uniform, he pioneered the integration of professional athletes, athletics in America, 
by breaking the color barrier in baseball, the nation's sport. He courageously challenged the deep-rooted custom of racial segregation in both the North and the South. But it wasn't easy. Thousands of letters poured into the team, into Jackie's family, that just issued threats. Some of these were from good Christian folk. Threats that, I will kill you. I will, I will erase your family from existence. You will die if you show up on the field. Sometimes when he showed up on the field, he wasn't even allowed to take the field. They would have police uh, officers come and take him away. His own family had to enter through a separate gate than the rest of the people in the crowd. Baseball was not ready for this change. Jackie knew that as he would go into towns, mobs would find his home, and they would run him out of town. He was not able to stay in the same hotels as the rest of his team. He also led the league in most hit by uh, players hit by pitches. That means players intentionally threw at his head. They intentionally tried to hurt him, to stab him. The St. Louis Cardinals were especially known for their abuse of Jackie and hitting him in the head. It would happen several times in a game. One of their players with the last name Slaughter, ironically, was known for giving Jackie a seven-inch slash into his leg intentionally as he crossed first base. People were out to persecute Jackie because they weren't excited about what he was doing. Phillies manager Ben Chapman called Robinson a derogatory name from their dugout and yelled that he should go back to the cotton fields over and over again throughout the game for hours. His fans and family was also met with derogatory terms as they would enter the stadium. Everywhere he went, he experienced opposition of which we can't understand. If you've never seen the movie 42, I encourage you to look at it. It's a story, it's a documentary that came out just two years, two or three years ago about Jackie Robinson, and it shows a very true and realistic picture of what Jackie had to deal with. The threats, the mobs, the discord from his own team and from others, and how he had to remain himself and at peace and show his true colors as a gentleman under all of that. I'm going to show you the trailer for the movie 42, and it shows you just a little bit of what he experienced. And if you haven't seen the movie, I encourage you, like I said, to see it. It is not a kid-friendly movie, but this trailer is. My daddy left us. I was only six months older than you are now. I don't remember him. You will remember me. Jackie Robinson, a black man in white baseball. I want you to know I'm there for you. Yeah, my heart. Think about the abuse that he's going to take. Your enemy will be out in force, but you cannot meet him on his own low ground. What are you going to do if one of these pictures throws through your head? I'll duck. Mark my words and circle this date. Negroes are going to run the white man straight out of baseball. This ain't the America I know. You hear me? If they knew you, they would be ashamed. If Robinson can help us win, then he is going to play on this ball club. You don't belong here, and you never will. 
Get off the field. Brooklyn Dodgers ain't changing our way of living. Where are we down? You are not the only one with something at stake here. You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No, I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. Give me a uniform. Give me a number on my back. I'll give you the guts. I follow, I Brooklyn Dodger them. I Jack, I rob, I sin. Oh man, I'm Jackie Robinson. Set when I run base, I dodge the pen. I'm just a ball player. You a hero. When Branch Rickey decided to bring an African-American into a white sport, somebody asked him, why are you doing this? And every time that he asked this question, he had a different answer. But one of his answers is my favorite. He said, well, I'm a Methodist. Jackie's a Methodist. And obviously God's a Methodist. So this is the right thing to do. Towards the end of his life, Branch admitted that when he was playing minor league baseball before he was a manager, that there was a catcher on his team that experienced deep persecution, deep violence, deep oppression, and he was an African-American catcher, and he never made it into the game of baseball. Branch Rickey, as an owner of a baseball team, wanted to take on racism in an easy way. He wanted to redefine a workplace, a career, as something that would become a mission field. Dodger, man, Dodger manager Branch Rickey believed that he and Jackie Robinson could win the racism battle and integrate into a white man's league a great baseball player with dignity and grace. Jackie knows that he cannot fight back and any act of aggression or defense would be convoluted by the press to spoil his image. Jackie must be a great baseball player, certainly, but above all else, he must be a gentleman. He experienced persecution in such a way that if he would slip up or make a mistake, he would be blamed because of his color or his religion or what he's doing. He had to be the perfect gentleman for this to work. Branch Rickey would continue to help Jackie hold his temper, turn the other cheap and focus on the bat and ball and not the next slur from out of the box or the audience. Branch continued to teach Jackie that he needed to learn the practice of Christian patience. More than once, he encouraged Robinson to be inspired and to think of Christ, the ridicule and taunting that Jesus bore, but also his moments alone in the wilderness when tempted by Satan. In Jackie's story that he wrote, he often talks about that he drew energy from this reality, that he knew his Messiah had even endured more persecution. That level of persecution Jesus experienced and that experience Jackie drew from is the level of persecution in which Jesus is talking about in the DNA of the kingdom. This is what we must be willing to follow Jesus into if we're willing and if need be. In your bulletin, there's a few points that I think we should take away from these two verses. You can fill them in as we go along, but the first one is this. 
At the heart of Matthew 5.10, Jesus is saying, those who experience trouble as a result of their commitment to the ways of God will experience God's blessings. Jesus and the kingdom of heaven will be especially tangible and near to those who are dealing with trouble because they are committed to following God. Those who experience trouble as a result of their commitment to the ways of God will experience God's blessings. That's the heart of Matthew 5.10. As a result of knowing the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus especially is near to those who are suffering in persecution, it's important to remember this. We should not fear persecution as we strive for righteousness, but rather be encouraged to experience God's tangible kingdom. As upward, as upside down and backwards as it seems, Knowing we get to see God and the kingdom in a unique way, in a tangible way, in the new way, should energize us in these situations rather than cause us to fear them. When we talk about persecution, it's scary. I'm sure every day that Jackie took the field with death threats on his back and on his family's back, that he was scared. But he had a focus on baseball. We need to focus on our mission not be scared of what it might mean to be part of that mission. Let's pause and note something about persecution. I want to make sure that we understand the definition of persecution, what it is and what it's not, so that we can fully understand it and be able to follow Jesus and identify when we are in it. Persecution is the harassment and oppression of someone because they faithfully live out their beliefs, convictions. If we would take the word that is used for persecution here and break it down into a definition, it would look something like this. Persecution is the systematic mistreatment of an individual or group by another individual or group. The most common forms are the religious and ethnic persecution. It is the afflicting of suffering, harassment, isolation, imprisonment, internment, fear, or pain, which are all factors that may establish persecution. Earlier followers of Jesus experienced this. Our Anabaptist forefathers experienced this. They knew this well. Jackie Robinson experienced these same emotions and these same parts and conflicts of persecution. As we note on persecution, let's remember this as well. Persecution is not trouble brought on as a result of someone's trespasses, crime, or their absurdity. Sometimes we we start to fly fly a flag that we are under persecution when we're really not. Some of that is because we've never experienced it in the same ways that others have. We've not tasted it, we've not experienced it, we've not lived into it or under it, so we don't understand it fully. So when something seems to be amiss or at conflict with us, we automatically want to label it as persecution and we're being tested. And I want to make sure that we we nail a few things of what persecution is not. In the past few weeks, I've seemed to be reading a lot of blogs and newspaper articles. And I've seen some Christians, for lack of a better word, who are just absurd. And they decide that they need to argue with atheists and agnostics and other Christians in the comments of these blogs and these newspaper articles. And they try to win their debates and they say it's, you know, they're, they're evangelizing. And then the minute they either lose their debate or it just becomes one big hairy mess, they automatically 
start taking energy from verses that deal with persecution. I, I've seen it like three times this week where someone's like, well, I'm just being persecuted because you can't see God's ways. That is not persecution. Persecution is not the absurdity that we do by arguing with others, and then when it goes away, it shows up in our face. That is not persecution. Uh, A few years ago, I watched somebody who committed a crime, and he had quite a few trespasses, and he had to deal with some consequences as a result of those. So when he announced what those consequences were, people started to give him Bible verses, and they said, uh, you know, you are being tested, you are being persecuted. Again, this is not persecution. This is just a stupid mistake that somebody made, and now they are facing the consequences of it. Our absurdity and consequences are not persecution. Lastly, I want to say this. We've been in a time where the nation is changing, where things that have been valued by the nation are different, and we often are quick to label change as persecution. We are quick to say that the minute something goes against the way we believe it, that it's persecution. And I I want to uh, fight that as well. Persecution is not a conviction different than your own being made a law or allowance in the country. Persecution is not the pushback we get when we issue social commentaries on our Facebook feeds on how our job or country is going down the drain. Persecution is only the oppression that disrupts departments of our life and all of the departments of our lives and makes us choose between one road and the other. If we could still operate on a road, even though the road has been widened to allow things we don't like on it, that doesn't make it persecution. Persecution is when we are faced with the reality that we either have to follow Jesus or face death. This is persecution. The changing of things we are comfortable with does not make persecution. Friends, we need a clear definition of what following Jesus in persecution looks like. And we must stop naming it the trouble we bring on ourselves as a result of trespasses, changes in politics, our crimes, our own absurdity. I fear what our true colors would look like under true persecution because they look so bad under false flags of persecution. What will we look like when it means our head or the faith? Because the way I've seen Christians act in Facebook commentaries and social media and comments on Langster Online articles, I'd be embarrassed to see what we really look like. Jesus reminds us that as we mirror Jesus, we should be aware that we may experience insult, trouble, and slander. Just the way the game gets played. It's just a piece of the game. We must learn to not take offense so easily. We should expect it. We should name that it's going to happen and be prepared for it. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, Jesus says. If you belong to the world, it would love you as your own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. In moments of baptism, of suffering, Jesus continues, we should confidently stand on the examples of other contenders of righteousness. Historically, Anabaptists believe in three types of baptism. 
the baptism of water, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the one we don't talk about too much anymore, the baptism of suffering, or often called the baptism of blood. Historically, Anabaptists have believed in these three baptisms. The Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective outlines these three very well. We do not have time to get into them, but I do have copies available in the back that explain to you what the three are, how they are separated, and their biblical references for them. We gather today on the foundations laid of our heritage of Anabaptists and as followers of Jesus who were persecuted. We boldly recognize that and stand on that, drawing energy from their strength and their hard experiences. I use the word contender here because it's a challenge to follow Jesus in persecution. It goes so much alongside with what we talked about last week in peacemaking. To, to follow Jesus into the Beatitudes means we need to be a contender of righteousness. When Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, it is just that. Those who are persecuted because they are following their commitment to me above all else. We need to know that when we stand here today, when we stand under test, that we can draw on energy and, and the examples that have been set for us. The same way that Jackie Robinson, when he took the field, thought of the pain and the suffering that Christ endured, that is what we have to draw on as well. The kingdom of heaven, both now and yet to come, should always be our motivation rather than just our destination. Sometimes we, we get hung up on talking about this this part of the Beatitudes, and we say, well, blessed are those who have been martyred, or blessed are those who are going through it. We know heaven has got a special place for those people. When, we, when they get there, that their, heaven is for them. We know that when they die doing things for God, they'll go to heaven. I think this passage is saying something so much more than that. The kingdom of heaven, which is both now and yet to come, should always be our motivation rather than just our destination. We should willingly and intentionally enter persecution because we are motivated only to taste more of God's goodness. If we follow Jesus in this way, it's a recognition that we are following God in a way that we want to taste something new of his kingdom. Some more goodness and good news of his kingdom. Heaven is what should motivate us to experience, not just the place we end up. The kingdom of heaven is both now and yet to come. And we get to experience a little bit more and more of it as we continue to live into these eight characteristics of the kingdom through the Beatitudes. In many ways, this passage is connected to last week's Blessed Are the Peacemakers. And to steal a line from Dodger manager Branch Rickey, Jesus, uh, and, and adapt it for our servant, Jesus doesn't want kingdom players who have the guts to fight back and muddy their witness. In the end of the video clip, we saw Jackie look at Branch Rickey and say, so you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back. Jesus doesn't want kingdom players who have the guts to fight back. That just becomes muddied. It, it makes their witness ruined. All of a sudden, our colors become less of who Christ is in us and less of the heaven we are experiencing and more about us and who we are and how we're defending our identity. When Jackie said that line, there's more in the movie, and this is where Branch tells him, if you slip up, it ruins everything we're doing because it falls back on you. Rather, Jesus wants kingdom players who have the guts to not fight back and to let our witness illuminate the darkness. 
we are reminded that throughout the whole New Testament that challenges like this are found throughout it. Romans 12, 14 is an example. Blessed are those who persecute you. Bless them in return and do not curse. This is how it's connected to last week. And we looked at blessing our peacemaker. When we endure moments of persecution, it's not moments of defense. It's not moments of trying to stake our claims or, or win the debate or corner. Uh, on, as we mentioned last week on a chess board, we're not trying to get our opponent in a checkmate. We are not trying to more, uh, more mandate belief for everyone. We are just trying to illuminate the darkness. Jesus wants kingdom players who have the guts not to fight back and to let our witness illuminate the darkness. N.T. Wright leaves this words with us. As we end the Beatitudes series and we, we finish our study on the ethos of the kingdom, I invite you to taste and see what it means to live into these eight characteristics of the kingdom. The Beatitudes, as N.T. Wright says, are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future. Because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is in fact the right way up. Try it and see. This is the invitation that Jesus gives us through the Beatitudes. It's also the invitation which he gives us through persecution. Come, taste and see what the kingdom is like if you are willingly and intentional about following me in this way. The end of the video we watched, Jackie Robinson answers Branch Rickey by saying, You give me a uniform, you give me a number on my back, and I will give you the guts. Jesus invites us today to pray that same surrender to him, that same sense of surrender to him. He's willing to give us a uniform, a role to play, a number on our back. He wants to put us in the game, but this is a part of the kingdom in which we need to be willingly to follow him in. We need to be intentional about following him in. We need to be able to make sure that we have the guts to give to Jesus.